Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, we've got a great show lined up today. I'm talking with James Bell, author of Maximilian's Treasure, and it's a combination legal thriller and action adventure. It's a really exciting story, and it dives into the world of lost treasures, greed, corruption, sensationalism. It's one of those uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of page turner, and it's set in modern day Mississippi. But before we start, let's get the inside scoop about James. James Bell is an award-winning author and retired judge who received the highest bar association approval ratings ever given to a Mississippi circuit or county judge. He is listed in preeminent lawyers, outstanding lawyers of America, and top 100 attorneys of North America. He is the author of two novels, Vampire Defense and Maximilian's Treasure. His short story, The Adventures of Sherlock Hound, was published in Marty Allen's collection, Dog Stories for the Soul, alongside stories with Mark Twain, John Steinbeck, Willie Morris, and others. The son of a Choctaw mother and a Mississippi businessman, Judge Bell is devoted to his wife, Joanne. They live near Jackson, Mississippi, and have four children. Judge Bell returned to law practice, but is frequently called back to the bench by the Mississippi Supreme Court for short-term assignments. Hi, James. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hey, Sherry. Thank you for inviting me to be on your program. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Why don't you tell us uh, what Maximilian's treasure is all about? It's a, a fight over a possession of a farm that's instigated by rumors that treasure is on the farm. And the rumors have caused 150 to 200 years of tragedy for this family. And which ultimately lead to uh, drive-by murder of the patriarch of the family. Our grandson chases after the suspects who are found scalped. Uh, and so a couple of lawyers come to represent this Choctaw family to protect their farm and to represent the young man who's charged with multiple murders. And then clues to a treasure are found on the farm. Uh, so it turns into a treasure hunt and a legal thriller, and it's an action adventure, and it's got some comedy and some tragedy and some uh, exciting scenes. And I think it's a fun read. I had a lot of fun writing it, so I think people will have a lot of fun reading it. Yeah, oh, I know I did, and it's all of those things, and then there's, there's a historical component also. Well, there, there is. What triggered this was... Um, I practice law in Mississippi, and I've been a judge in Mississippi. I still get activated to go back to the bench once in a while. And um, But 35 years ago, an elderly Choctaw man asked me to help him look for gold on his farm. He believed that uh, Civil War gold was hidden on his farm, and, and so a friend of mine and I went and spent a wonderful day talking to the old man and uh, hearing his stories and looking around the farm, and that just played in my mind all this time until I turned it into this story. And um, Maximilian was uh, the emperor of Mexico. He was an Austrian that the French installed in Mexico when they when France invaded Mexico, and they mm -hmm. put this Austrian prince in charge of the country. And he had to fight a civil war, and 
around the same time, our Civil War was ongoing, and he thought of the Confederates as his natural allies because of the Monroe Doctrine. It says that uh, Europeans are to stay out of the Americas. And so he sent gold to the South to help the South in the war. And the story even goes back further than that. Uh, when Cortez came to, the Spanish came to Mexico and invaded, when they first went to Mexico City, uh, Tenochtitlan, uh, when they arrived in the city, they were welcomed in the city, and they saw a mountain of gold. And then they decided that they were going to take the gold for themselves. War started, and when they finally took the city, all the gold was gone. And so the two emperors, two Mexican emperors had died, and the then-living emperor was captured and tortured to death, and he never revealed the location of the treasure, mm. and it was never found. And conquistadors came and came and came and scoured the country and never found the treasure. Well, it was rumored that Maximilian, uh, the location was revealed to Maximilian, and he wanted to bring the Southerners to come help him in his war, get France to return to Mexico to help him in his civil war, uh, and but that didn't happen, and he died, and if he had the secret to the location of the treasure, that was lost when he was executed. Mm. So we find it in this story. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now, did this man that went to you and asked for help 35 years ago, w was he looking for Maximilian's treasure, or did you tie those two things together? I tied those together, but he thought Mexican gold was on his farm. And so that was part of the fun of the event, and uh, as we probed and looked, and it was just, it turned out to be just vague ideas and rumors from long ago and and uh, uh nothing substantial mm -hmm. and uh, but it was fun it was yeah. just it was fun to sit around and talk about and and uh, and you know that might sound unusual and i guess it is but it's not unusual in mississippi we have um, uh, wonderful eccentric characters here in this beautiful state filled with great great people and uh handsome and a few dastardly folks, and and they and all that mix really makes uh, everyday life interesting. Yeah, yeah, never a dull moment, huh? <laughs> no. Oh. Now, you mentioned just a minute ago that you kind of tucked that away, that incident. When did you bring it back out and decide to write the story? Uh, my first year of law practice, I was having so much fun. It was so interesting. My desire to write exploded at that mm. time, and I, and that's been, golly, how long has that been? Forty-three years ago. Mm. Uh, the first time I walked into a courtroom, uh, well, I, I really got lucky. Uh, I had, I decided I was going to defend citizens charged with crimes. Mm -hmm. And I got lucky. I got some good cases right out of law school. I mean, I just opened, hung my shingle, and I got some cases, and I started winning. And I didn't. I just thought that's what you're supposed to do, right? Yeah. I didn't know that it was unusual to win criminal cases, so I just kept winning criminal cases. And and the the first time I walked into a courtroom, I was fascinated by the drama that was real real life drama going on. Everybody's life. Their future, their faith, their fortune, their fame, everything turned on the answer to a single question. Mm -hmm. their, their whole world either turned upside down or they were dejected or exuberant or everything changed in mm -hmm. a moment. Bam. It, it was real life stories. It was 
thrilling, exciting, and I, I loved preparing to go to court and imagining the questions that would be asked and the answers would be asked and what I would say in response to that and how I might or how I might get the truth out of somebody who didn't want to give it to me and how I, and and how to get somebody out on a limb uh, with questioning. Uh, so that they didn't have any choice except to make an obvious lie or tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, spending the time to think through those things to get to that moment, to get to the critical moment. And uh, so that was so fascinating. I wanted to write about it. And so I wrote the first chapter of my first book, The First Year I Practiced Law, and it only took me 35 years to finish this <laughs> oh, Never give up, right? That's right. Never give up. Yeah. And it, which story. has always been one of our uh, themes is you never give up. You never know. Uh, even if things are going badly, if, when, things, when things look all up, when all seems lost, there's always an appeal. And, <laughs> and, and great things can happen and uh, things can turn and another piece of evidence can come up. And, and uh, that's just life. Never give up. Yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like you take all that exuberance that you have for the law and you, you also put it into your writing is what it sounds like just from reading your book. Um, That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give, a, if I could get a tenth of what I feel into the story, it would be a great story. Mm. So that's what I want to do. I want to pour that into the story so that the reader can experience what I've experienced. It's a fascinating field. I would not want to do anything else mm. other than write about it. Right. <laughs> I love that. You have some amazing characters in this story, and I love their interactions with each other, and uh, specifically John Brooks and Jackson Bradley. So uh, what can you tell us about your protagonists? After I'd practiced for about a year, another young lawyer came to me and saw some of the work I was doing. He liked it. He wanted to join me. He said, we, we need to be partners. Mm. So we, did. we couldn't agree on the name of our firm, so we flipped a coin. And he and I became uh, best friends. We were partners, and we were absolutely opposite in our worldviews about everything. Uh, for instance, he was extraordinarily uh, liberal, and I was extraordinarily conservative. He was agnostic. I was very, very much a believer, and he looked at everything in the world exactly 180 degrees differently than I did, and it made us the best of friends and absolutely unbeatable partners because we looked at every problem from opposite angles and we'd come up with great solutions, and our differences of opinions never bothered us at all. Mm -hmm. That's just, hey, that's the way he thinks, that's the way I think, that's fine. And we, we both accepted that. And so I, I wanted that dynamic that uh, Jack and I had uh, to be in the story. Mm -hmm. And so I created my friend Jack, uh, passed away as a young man. So I, I just recreate him as Jackson Bradley and put him in my stories. Just change his name slightly and put him in his personality in my stories. And so just, this is just a way for me to bring him back to life and also continue some of our conversations <laughs> and, uh, and let him develop as a character. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a story behind the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's And that's an amazing tribute to your dear friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what would he say about your books? 
Oh, he would have a blast with them, <laughs> and uh, then he would uh, he would recognize some of the conversations and some of the events, and because <laughs> uh, in law practice you have so many things happen. Well, I just take some of these real life events and I just change the facts a little bit, change the. Uh, change the story uh, a little bit, and but it becomes the inspiration for the novel. Uh, in, in fact, Maximilian's treasure is a true story. Only the facts have been changed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that. Uh, I love the story behind your protagonist. My business partner and I are, are opposites also, and I think that's what makes it work. That there's something about that dynamic. You know, if you can just accept each other for who they are. Yes, it, it's that's right, and and that's what we're supposed to do, and we and in society today, at least as we see in media, mm-hmm. that's not happening. People with opposite, if you don't think like I do, you're the enemy, yeah. and um, no, that's what makes the world work. <laughs> if everybody was the same, what a dull place this would be, right. and if everybody were the same, we would we would miss all kinds of opportunities to solve problems. We need to look at things from different angles so we can understand better what the truth is and reach better solutions. And if you think of the person with an with an opposite worldview as the enemy, you d- absolutely discard everything they say as though it was crazy and wrong and so forth. And it might be wrong, but it won't be crazy. <laughs> you might both be wrong. That's right. <laughs> uh, so we got along just, we got along fine and respected each other's opinions. And in fact, because we respected each other's opinions, it was, made us able to see solutions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So your background as a lawyer and a judge obviously shined through the story. That, that's not surprising, but I, I think what I found most impressive uh, was your ability to make me laugh out loud? I mean, that's not easy to do. I'm, that's not easy. I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> I love stories where I laugh out loud and I want laugh out loud experiences from my reader. Uh, belly laughs. I want. I if if you can get one belly laugh out of a story, the story's worth it. <laughs> uh, so that's what I want from my readers. Yeah, but th- that's not easy to do. So, d- I mean, do you have any secrets or? Well, uh, sure. I bet you write as much as you read, and the, and you write reviews, and so I I think that what I'll say is something you've experienced. Mm-hmm. It you experience it in your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the whole scene. The, you can see the characters. Uh, you're. You're just you're there observing the scene. You hear the voice. You smell the bacon. You smell the gun smoke. You hear the scream. You hear the uh, you you hear the banter back and forth. Uh, and so you're just trying to capture that. Put it on paper. Get it on the computer screen before the vision passes. <laughs> While yeah. it's still fresh, you're trying to get it down. And uh, and so I hear the dialogue. I see the interaction between the people. I see their exp- the expression on their faces. Uh, so, uh, but that's not any different than what I would do getting ready to go to court. Mm. I would think through, or I hear the questions I want to ask, what would be the obvious answers, what are the not-so-obvious answers, and what would be the right response to that? What would be the follow-up question? How would that, when this happens, when this happens, what is the next most likely thing. And so I, I've been doing that all my life and getting ready for court. Mm-hmm. And I do the same thing, getting ready to write. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. 
So what level of detail was involved in the research for hmm. Maximilian's treasure? And because I have uh, uh, American Indian in my background, my mom, Choctaw, mm -hmm. uh, I have always uh, had a warm spot for Choctaw and for uh, Native American history, and so I've studied things like um, North American, uh, Native American history, and Central American and South American histories. Uh, I also read a couple of books on the conquest of Mexico by the Spanish, and I read a couple of books about Maximilian. Because mm -hmm. so, uh, I knew I was going to be writing this story, so I thought I would pick up a little bit about Maximilian, who is a really interesting character. He really was sincere and wanted to help Mexico and made some significant improvements in Mexican law that helped the poor people in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, he did such a good job that his chief rival, Juarez, city named after him, mm -hmm. who is a first full-blooded Indian who became uh, leader of Mexico after, after the Spanish conquests, uh, was the head of the revolution that overthrew Maximilian, and Juarez did not want to kill, to execute Maximilian because he admired him mm. and thought he had been doing a, a good job, but he wanted to make sure that no other European would invade Mexico, and so he executed him. Wow. And in fact, the firing squad didn't want to even pull the trigger uh, until Maximilian gave him permission. Oh, my goodness. To, yeah, uh, go go ahead, young men, take and carry out your orders, uh, and uh, uh, I'm ready, and uh, you may fire. <laughs> it's not personal, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he was an interesting character, and he had the opportunity to leave Mexico because uh, some Confederate cavalry, after the war, got together and returned to Mexico to rescue 8,000 Southerners who had settled there and now were under siege mm. during the Revolution. So some uh, about 150 former Confederate cavalry rode 1,200 miles into Mexico, rounded up 8,000 people, and brought them back, fighting all the way there and back. <laughs> it would be a spectacular story yeah. if, it were, if it were ever told. And they invited Maximilian to come with them. Wow. And he said, no, Mexico needs me. Wow. And so I, that's, there's a little bit of that in that story. There's, a, uh, there's an opportunity for Maximilian to leave instead, in, my, in this story, instead Maximilian sends evidence that he's found the gold so that somebody will send him help, mm -hmm. which is the reason France invaded Mexico was to get this gold. And they couldn't find it, so France left. Yeah. Uh, at the end of his reign, he's sending for help, saying, hey, I found it, but help never comes. Yeah, I love history. Yeah. Well, it makes a difference to us today. Uh, what, how do we get where we are? And what mistakes were made in the past that we might avoid today? Mm -hmm. What did they do right in the past that we might repeat today? Uh, so I like to tie history into the present because we are tied. Mm -hmm. So did you uh, travel at all? Well, I, uh, my wife and I went to the Dominican Republic, and that is in the story, the Domin visit in the Dominican Republic, and we had such a, such a wonderful time there, wonderful folks, and they would speak a, uh, a mixture of 
Spanish, English, Spanglish, mm, yeah. I suppose, and uh, very polite, always saying lo siento, and then, then would speak in English with a few Spanish words mixed in. I tried to recreate that feel, and we went diving the reefs off of uh, uh, the Dominican Republic, and I put that in the story, and my son and I uh, hitchhiked across southern Mexico, the state Chiapas, and uh, went through the jungle, visited a village of bamboo huts, and the people there were wonderful. They brought us in and invited us to eat with them, and they gave us fresh fruit and a clear broth, uh, and it was just great. And we climbed a cliff that's described in this book, went to a waterfall, went behind the waterfall, found a cave behind the waterfall as described in this mm, book. Mm-hmm. There was a stream inside the cave. We followed the stream back into the cave and um, to a pool. And there was inside the cave, there was a waterfall falling into a, into a pool. And then that turned into a stream that ran out the mouth of the cave and joined a, a waterfall that, from above. Mm-hmm. It was falling from above. Mm-hmm. And it was gorgeous. And so uh, that place is, of course, in this story. And and we had to hang by our fingernails all along the edge of the cliff as we worked our <laughs> way along the cliff to get to the cave. And so I recreate that. Yeah. Uh, experiences that I've had, I, I put in the book. Yeah, and going to those places and experiencing them firsthand, that helps so much in recreating the the setting for your novel. For yeah. the story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That so, sounds like uh, fun, yeah. We had a great time traveling, and my wife and I get to travel, and so I try to put some of those, use that as an excuse to write. In fact, that's when I do most of my writing. She's a brilliant programmer, mm-hmm. and she, she will go to conferences for maybe a week. And I'll hold up in the room or find some good place to, inspiring place to write. And I will, I bet you I'll get 30 or 60 pages done that week in in a novel. And then when she gets finished with the program, we'll go play at night. And I'll go, and she'll be working in the day, I'll be working in the day. And I'm away from work, and I can really focus on writing those weeks. Yeah, that's perfect. So what does your family think about your writing? They're they're my top fans. My family and friends are. They encourage me to keep writing and to write another story. And when's the next story coming? And and it takes me so long to write because I'm I work full time mm-hmm. as a lawyer and then fill in for judges and then finding the time to write. It, it takes me too long to get a story out. But I have a blast doing it, and I get tremendous encouragement from my family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's what matters. If you're having fun, that's, I think that's what matters most. So That's right. And I am having fun. It is a blast. And I have stories to tell that I think are worth sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just the story. When I was much younger than I am now, it seemed to me that every book, every story, every program, every movie, everything, everything had a purpose. It all, there was always a moral to the story. Right, right. Uh, and it seems like we've lost that with much of our entertainment today. Today, many programs just seem to be for entertainment value, shock value, very little. Uh, it's hard to find the moral to the story. What's the purpose of this mm-hmm. other than to entertain? And there's nothing wrong with entertainment. I don't mean that. But uh, I want to carry messages. I want the reader to get positive 
life-changing, potentially life-changing messages in the story, mm-hmm. uh, which is really no different than throughout all Western civilization, all, all great writing. Uh, and I'm not claiming that my writing is great, but all great writing carries messages mm-hmm. of uh, of redemption and forgiveness and uh, character and virtue uh, from Homer to Virgil to Shakespeare to for centuries. There's always been a purpose in the story. Right. And uh, there's some great virtue that's being uh, presented uh, and held up as something that ought to be emulated. And with recognition that there's uh, flaws and foibles and error and what happens when you follow it when you take the wrong turn. And so I want to recreate that. I want that to be part of the story. That's really why I write. And mm. Indeed, I'll tell you, it was not enough for me to want to write a book. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough for me to have the story in me because it took me 35 years to write. It was not until I said, wait a minute. This book has to have a purpose, uh, and I just turned my purpose over to my creator. I'm mm-hmm. a Christian. I'm a believer, and I said, well, he wants me to write, and so I'm putting him in the book, and I'm going to entertain a reader. Uh, they're also going to hear about Jesus. He's mm-hmm. going to be part of the story, mm-hmm. and that's really the reason I'm going to write the story, but I'm going to entertain somebody while I'm doing it, mm-hmm. and uh, because I had a purpose, I was able to write the story, and I, so within, I spent 35 years trying to write the book, then I got a purpose, and I finished it in a year. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Once you have the purpose, you got to, you have to, every writer has to have a reason. What's, what's your reason for writing this? Right. Why? And if you have that why, then you can keep focusing when the roadblock comes, and the, when the words quit coming, and the ideas quit coming, then you can look past that at the purpose. What's the purpose? Well, I have this purpose, therefore I will write, and you can break through those barriers, and you just keep going. And um, uh, so write with purpose. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a piece of advice for upcoming, or for yeah. all, all authors, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to comment on is you have an amazing social media presence. Do you do that yourself? No, Lisa Bynum, a social media consultant, mm-hmm. is doing a great job with that, and I turned that over to her. And I have to do other things, so I, so I let her do that. Right, right. I love what you did on Facebook. I love how you created uh, several short uh, video clips uh, talking about your book. I think that's a great way to connect with your readers. Thank you. And I, I, that's part of the fun. Uh, right. Once you've written the book, then you get to go out and meet people. Right. right. And uh, uh, it, it gives you something to talk about. Some people will be interested in the book and they'll ask you about it. So you get to talk with them, meet people, strike up conversations. And that is uh, and, and that's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that mostly? Like what, what is your favorite way to interact with your, your fans? Well, I don't know if I have any fans beyond my uh family and, and immediate friends, but, but, uh, but there are people who are interested in the books and, in, uh, and hoping for other books and stories. Yeah. And um, I like to carry, I don't have any on me at the moment, I like to carry bookmarks in my pocket with uh, basics about the book. Mm-hmm. And cover of the book on one side, a little bit of information about it on the other, and it just gives me something to hand somebody. When I meet somebody, well, let me give you a bookmark, and then 
they'll ask about the book. Yeah. And um, that's a conversation starter. So that's one of the things I do. Other times we've uh, been invited to talk about the books at bookstores or clubs, and then those are people who are book lovers, and they want to know what it was like to write the book. Right. A lot of writers are introvert, but with your your background, your career background, that's Probably not so much for you, huh? <laughs> well, here's the truth. Uh, I'm an introvert, and um, uh, it's hard for me to go meet people. And yet I had to run for public office, mm. which is which introverts do not do. Right. Uh, and so it would be, it would take me really working up to go into a room and say hello to somebody and shake their hand and so forth. And it would be very difficult to start. And then once I start, I could do the room without any problem. Unless I stopped for any reason, then I'd have to work myself up to the next <laughs> one. So that was actually good for me to overcome those natural inhibitions that uh, introverts have. So uh, sometimes we'd rather write about something than do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to go do it. And I want to get out and see people and meet people. But it's not, it doesn't come naturally. I have to push myself. Mm-hmm. And then once you get started, it just flows. So I can say that to fellow introverts, there is hope. And you just <laughs> push through it, and there is conversation on the other side. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I can relate too. <laughs> so what's next for you? You've got two books out. Do you have anything coming up? Yes, uh, I wrote a book for my grandkids. Uh, it's called Bebop, the Honeybee Wannabe Hero. Uh, about a little bee who, uh, who the fate of the hive depends on this bee. He wants to be a hero. On his first day of bee school, he sees lots of pictures of famous bees on the classroom wall, and he says, one day my picture is going to be up there, and all the bees laugh at him. And, um, and so, so then the story runs. And uh, so that is finished, and now I'm going to go find an illustrator. Nice. And so it's a picture book? It's, I don't know that it's a picture book, but it, it needs some illustration. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's not a uh, preschool reader. It's, it'll be a uh, uh, 40, 50-page little oh. booklet. Okay. Then uh, I have started the next novel, which is Whom Shall I Send? Uh, there's a character in the first book called Father uh, Michael McCarty, who, um, who's been defrocked, former priest mm-hmm. who's defrocked and he is an exorcist and he's been defrocked because his methods are not approved mm. and so he contacts at the end of maximilian's treasure they hear from father mike and he is uh in prison in europe and about to go on trial at the hague for war crimes so my lawyers are going to go rush off to see if they can help him at at the hague Oh, that sounds exciting. And I'm researching the the book after that, and that is uh, Nicodemus, who is a scholar who knows the prophecies of the coming Messiah. He studied them all his life, and he's hearing witnesses claim that uh, these prophetic events just occurred, and so he rushes out to see for himself, and he always arrives too late, a day too late, an hour too late, a minute too late. Oh, no. And uh, but he hears the excited witnesses describing what just occurred, and he knows the scripture where that's what's so, what was supposed to happen, and he will catch up with Jesus one night, and say, "Hey, we know you're from the Father," and they'll have the they'll they'll have their famous conversation, the born again conversation, 
and uh, which confuses Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is the fellow who defends Christ before the Sanhedrin. Okay. And uh, he's the only one that speaks on his behalf. And then he's one of two people who go and retrieve the body. And um, so it'll be fun to tell this story from a different set of eyes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the outsider looking in. Right. Well, you've got a lot going on then. Uh, well, it's it's fun. It's fun. And you, I find that these story ideas, while you're writing, while you're in the creative mood, more story ideas come to you. And, and so, uh, you know, I sketch it out don't want to lose that inspiration and I just put it in line right (laughs) and in fact before I finished vampire defense the first book which incidentally is the murder trial of a young man who claims the person he killed was a vampire and that's his defense I know I want to go back and read that one I know (laughs) that I know the two stories are not you know you don't have to read one to enjoy the other but I do want to go back and read that one yeah yeah. Uh, so before I finished that book, I already had started a few pages in uh, Maximilian's Treasure. And so that the stories, the end of Vampire Defense and the beginning of Maximilian's Treasure overlap. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as you get to the end of Maximilian's Treasure, Whom Shall I Send is mentioned. They, they receive a letter from Father Mike. So John is telling Karen to grab her bags. We're on the way to The Hague. I love it. Sounds like there's a lot of great things coming up. James, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, I really, really enjoyed learning more about you because um, I love your work and, and you do have a fan. I'm a fan. So uh, great. Thank I, you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for joining me. And, and Sherry, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to spend this time with you and get to know you and, uh, and for you to share your time with your viewers, with me. That's just great. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today for my interview with James Bell, author of Maximilian's Treasure. You can learn more about James and his work by visiting his website and social media pages through the links listed in the show notes. And hey, while you're here, be sure to check out a few of the other interviews on Inside Scoop Live.